Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. This is one of those things that are uh, one of those series I was excited to get into because we really taught a lot of this content on a Sunday morning a few years ago before we had this great media team. So I've been looking forward to doing this on a Wednesday night so we could get this stuff with a quality uh, broadcast onto YouTube so it's there so people can go back and watch it, people can share it, and really, like I said, uh, learn some foundational truths uh, about some things that maybe, you know, I, I like to say this, you know, one would think that foundational questions, you know, wouldn't be considered hard questions, but for many Christians, they are. And so hopefully we can, uh, we can uh, give some ammunition, we can give some, uh, give some, uh, we can edify the church body a little bit by covering these things through this series. So, you know, uh, one of the reasons I think that these uh, foundational issues that you know people think they're they're uh, hard questions, even though they're foundational, I think one of the reasons for that you say, well, why is that? Well, I think a lot of people have had a supernatural uh, pers- personal experience with Jesus, but they have never really had a supernatural experience studying the Bible personally, and. That's what I hope to lead you guys into tonight, okay? Because uh, if you don't have, if you, if you have a supernatural experience with Jesus and you give your heart to the Lord, but you never truly have a supernatural experience with the Holy Spirit in your approach to studying the Word of God, that's going to leave you with a lot of unanswered questions. And it really makes for an unstable faith. So with that, you know, we, we, always, we always say around here, don't we, that we need to know what we believe, and we also need to know why we believe it. Know what you believe, and also know why you believe what you believe. I mean, we live in an unprecedented time in history. Uh, knowledge beyond our wildest dreams, truly. Just a click away, isn't it? Uh, we live, I believe that we live in the time that Daniel uh, prophesied about a time in uh, a time in which we have witnessed the, that explosion of knowledge that he talked about. I mean, if you think about it for a second, there is more uh, there is more uh, computing power in this cell phone than there is in the computer that sent a man to the moon. Right. So back then, the computers were the size of a room. Now, a, a more powerful computer goes in my pocket. We're living in a time where man grows wiser and wiser in his own eyes. You know, so when your unbelieving friends, think about it like this, when your unbelieving friends or your friends who are perhaps believers but weaker in their faith, when they come to you for answers on issues on what you believe and why, are you going to have answers for them? Are you going to have answers for them? Tonight, I hope to give you some great nuggets of truth to aid you in your defense of the Word of God. And that's what this whole series is all about. That's what tonight is all about. The number one need, the church, hear me here, the number one need the church was intended to meet 
wasn't to be a social club, to give you a social club. It, it, it wasn't entertainment, all right? The number one need the church was intended to meet is that of equipping saints, equipping the saints to carry the gospel into all the world, amen? Somebody say amen, verily, truth, right? That's what this series is all about. At Life Story Church, now, you know this if you're a Life Story Church member and you come faithfully on Sundays already, but if you're just tuning in for the first time, you, let me say this. At Life Story Church, we aim to restore confidence in the Word of God to the believer. We aim to restore confidence in the Word of God to the believer. And if that's you, if you're, in a, if you're having a, a, a crisis of faith and crisis of confidence in the Word of God, tonight is just for you. So I hope this thing gets, sh- I hope you share the heck out of this video tonight. There are basically two views that a person can really take in life. And can I see that uh, first graphic tonight? Two views that a person can take in life. They're this. Either life is a cosmic accident or life is a divine plan. If you believe that this is all due to some kind of divine plan as 90% of the world, by the way, believes. Did you know that? 90% of the entire world believes that we are here because God put us here. That this is part of a divine plan. Now, many people, there are many different pagan religions around the world, and there's different people who believe that God is somebody else than what we believe, obviously. But collectively, there's one thing that generally the people of earth agree on, and in, in that, that is that there is a God, a, a divine plan. So if you're one of those 90%, then you're going to seek for divine answers to these questions. If you're seeking for divine answers to these questions, where are you going to turn though? If only there was some kind of resource, right? Some kind of book or guidebook that you could turn to for answers. All right, there, there is. There is. There is what we talked about last week as a portal into the very heart of God that we have and we have access to right here and in our homes, and likely, if you're watching this, in your home as well. Where we can turn is to the Word of God for these answers. What are we even here for, right? With that being the case, is there any wonder why Satan has slandered and tried to call into question the authority of the Word of God? Last week, we said over and over again, last Wednesday night, if you remember, over and over again, we we said... uh, Uh, The Bible is the Word of God. Remember that? The Bible is the Word of God. Over and over again, we said that. Any wonder why it has been slandered like it has? I mean, even before the New Testament letters, and the Gospels for that matter, even before they were even compiled, Satan was trying to rewrite history itself. It makes me think of when... uh, 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 the Lord pulled uh, uh, Abraham out of his tent and said, look up at the stars and retell retell the story written in the heavens, if you even can. Recount, recount the story written in the, if you break it down into the Hebrew, right? Uh, If you even, if even you still can, because 
the, the story of the heavens that was written in the heavens of the Messiah and the virgin birth that was written originally in the Maseroth, that was corrupted at Babylon and became the Zodiac. So, I mean, Satan has been trying to rewrite history for a long time. Paul's letters to, uh, letter to the Colossians and First uh, John as well, they're both combating the teachings of the Gnostics. All attacks levied on the word of God are satanic in nature. We've, we need to establish that the word of God is under attack. We focused a lot on this last week. We're going to focus on it again tonight, but we're going to take it to a new place tonight, all right? Uh, these Gnostics, all right, were rife with satanic influence. As They were rife with it, and they set to undermine the word of God, and they set out to profit off of the hijacking of the Word of God as well. So we're going to talk about them tonight. Uh, we, may even, uh, we may even study Acts uh, chapter 8 and Simon Magus, who is the father of the Gnostics in this series, but uh, we'll see. But as I said before, I digress. Uh, I said, even before the New Testament letters and Gospels, didn't I? Even before the New Testament letters and Gospels were written, Satan was trying to undermine the Word of God. He was trying to rewrite history. The spirit, the spirit of those that tried to undermine the Word of God as authoritative, the spirit, uh, that Gnostic spirit, it can truly be summed up in one verse for us. And that's where I want to begin tonight. Can we read Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 through 5? Let's read that. Way back in the garden, church, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, if we read that, we just, in our Western mind, we read the, the word eyes there and we, we keep going, right? Well, he didn't, he didn't want her eyes to be open. But if you take that apart in the Hebrew, it actually means something more than just your eyes, your physical eyes, your eyelids being opened, right? It's A-N in Hebrew. In other words, it meant eye. It, meant, it didn't mean your physical eyes. It meant of mental and spiritual faculties. Your mental and spiritual faculties will be opened. That I that you talk that the pagans talk about so much in other cultures, they the third eye right there they talk about all the time, don't they? We see the spirit of deception as at work right here in the garden. And Satan is saying, Your your mental and spiritual faculties will be opened up as never before, right? Your eye will be opened. Well, we see that that has been Satan's strategy since the beginning, literally the beginning. We're in Genesis chapter 3 here. We're in the garden, right? Since the beginning, and not much has changed. Uh, let me just go through a few different pictures with you guys. Can I see that first one? This eye, right? Do we talk about this eye? I mentioned it, that it was popular in paganism. There it is, the eye of Horus coming to us from... Uh, uh, Babylon, it's actually Egypt, right? But that religion traveled from Babylon to Egypt. Horus, who was, before he was Horus, he was uh, um, uh, all of the, the Samaritan gods. He was Molech, Baal, you know, so all of these 
Babylonian gods just get new names as they travel through the region. Here's the Eye of Horus. Well, that, that was where we started. Is it around today? Can I see the next photo? Let's see the next photo. Well, it's on our money for crying out loud. How did, why in the world would the Freemasons want the Eye of Horus on our money? I don't know. Uh, could there be a deeper uh, deceptive uh, meaning to this? Well, we don't need to jump into that tonight. Let's just keep going. Let's just for the point, making the point of how prevalent it still is in our culture. Can I see the next photo? Well, we, we all had that. Remember when we all had the internet and it, would, it was dial up at this time, right? And you'd make that horrible noise. Well, the eye and the pyramid, why is that on America Online? Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Have you ever looked at that logo and realized what it really is? It's an eyeball looking right at you. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. We've seen this uh, tattoo become very popular on celebrities. That's, there's the third eye. Let's keep going. What do we have? This is a picture that's, uh, I'm not sure what uh, pop star that is, but we see this pose and we see this, uh, um, all these different poses that those who are uh, in, so they believe they're self and they believe that they're enlightened, the Illuminati, the, the elite, the Hollywood and what, we see all of these pictures. Do we have another one? Is that, we've got one more. Oh, even Taco Bell's getting in on it, right? So, Obviously, not much has changed. Not much has changed. The spirit of deception saying, hey, I'll open your third eye. I'll give, I'll, I will give you mental and spiritual faculties that other people don't have. This is, all, this is nothing new under the sun here, guys. Nothing new under the sun. This is about deception. This is about enticing you to, to believe that, that uh, there is more for you, that God is withholding, and, and this isn't everything. There's more to it. There's, a, there's secret knowledge that you can have have that isn't here, and you can't totally trust this. Did God really say that you couldn't eat of that tree? That's all that's happening with this, the, the assault that the Word of God is under today. When we see even just teaching the Word of God makes you, uh, you get accused of hate speech in some countries around the world, like Canada or London or England and whatnot, right? So nothing new under the sun. The deception is still prevalent. It's never gone away. It has never gone away throughout the generations. As a matter of fact, we, the, what we're really looking at still today is Gnostic in nature. The Gnostic twisting of Scripture began in 55 AD. Can I see this next graphic? Moving on. The Gnostic twisting of Scripture began in 55 AD. It's referenced by 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we may get to that tonight. We'll be in 2 Peter a little bit. They did, what did they do? How so? They disparaged existing writings. They disparaged uh, uh, the Septuagint. They would have disparaged the letters coming from the apostles and coming from Paul. They mixed Greek philosophies with revelation from God. So they take Greek philosophies. They would take revelation that had been given to the apostles uh, and that had been taught by Jesus even, and they would mix it with Greek philosophies and they'd mix it all up. They believed that all material was evil. Their headquarters was in Alexandria, Alexandria, Egypt, and there were a lot of Gnostic universities in the first century, right out of the gate. Like I said, uh, even uh, John was dealing with it when he wrote First John. Paul was dealing it with it when he wrote to the Colossians. They were there right out of the gate. As a matter of fact, the Gnostics were around even before Jesus' time, even before the Messiah came. So 
Uh, they were, had all of these Babylonian pagan ideas and whatnot. And then when Jesus came and the gospel was given and the apostles began to teach it, then they would just, they would just rob from them and, 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 and re, rebrand, in other words. So, you know, they started teaching about Jesus, but they taught that, what was the, that next one? They, that Jesus was not God in flesh, that they taught that he was a phantom because they believed that all material, all flesh was evil. All material period was evil. So Jesus, if he was good, he had, must have been a phantom. So that obviously there couldn't have been any f- footprints in the sand like we like to talk about, right? Uh, it was what we would call, really what we would call uh, a new age, new aged, mixed with Greek philosophies and an appearance of Christianity. That's important because they had all that mess in there, yet they would still try to appear Christian. And that's very relevant to us today and what we're dealing with today. All right? It was already gaining momentum before John died, obviously. As I mentioned, First John is essentially a Gnostic rebuttal. The word Gnostic, and this is my favorite one on the list here, <laughs> the word Gnostic itself, it means secret knowledge, right? So to, in other words, suggesting I know something that you don't know, and if you'll come with me, I can show you something, right? And it still just goes back to the Garden of Eden. Oh, did he really say don't eat from that tree? Mm-hmm. In other words, implying that they know and you don't. There's knowledge for me, but not for thee. Gnostics were known for, this is a big one, this is a big one, mutilating scripture. They would even delete portions of scripture so it would fit with whatever they were teaching. The early uh, church father, who's very famous, Arrhenius, he said this. Can we see this quote? He said, Speaking of the Gnostics, wherefore they and their followers have betaken themselves to mutilating the scriptures, which they themselves have shortened mutilating, chopping it up. Oh, wow. I wonder if that still happens today. Huh? Oh, we'll get there. We don't want to get too far ahead. Gnostic writings and teachings, they were easily identified uh, by the disciples, and they were easily identified by early church fathers as well. However, today, today, their documents carry some kind of historical integrity in the scientific community for some reasons. I don't know why. Uh, well, why is this all relevant? Why is this all relevant to our overarching uh, uh, conversation? Well, their documents, their Gnostic documents to this day contribute to the authority crisis we're, we're witnessing in this generation. I've talked about this a lot, I know, but have you guys ever seen the Christmas time and, and when Easter comes around, right, the History Channel will put out all these shows, you know, uh, about lost books of the Bible or forbidden books of the Bible. That's my favorite one, right? Uh, <laughs> Has anybody watched those shows, honestly, and just thought to the, themselves, well, wow, what's this now? I mean, they... They left some books out of the Bible? Why would they do that? I mean, I remember they've been doing, having those shows on since I was a teenager. And I would think that, wow, why would they leave books out of the Bible? What in the world is this? Right? Well, these, 
these are Gnostic books. They're fakes. They're forgeries. They're Gnost from the Gnostic universities of Alexandria found in the Nag Hammadi collection, right? And they're from Alexandria and they're three to 500 years, dated three to 500 years, most of them, after Jesus and the disciples were walking on the earth. Yet these Gnostic books are being passed off as credible and they're not, and they're, they're aiding in, in uh, this attack on the word of God where people are having less confidence in it because, well, they must, uh, something must be up with that if they're trying to keep some books out. Maybe there's some truth in these things, right? Satan hasn't stopped attacking the word of God. He hasn't stopped for, like I said, he hasn't stopped for one generation, guys. There are modern Gnostics Today, there are modern Gnostics in the pulpits of some of the most popular churches in this country, and it's scary. Mm. So, uh, before I get to any of anybody modern, you know, there were some uh, modern Gnostics that that participated in giving us some of the Bible translations that we have. So I, here's what I want to do. I want to, get, I want to take a, a few minutes and I want to go over this piece of tonight's message again to inform you, okay? To give you ammunition, to give you knowledge, okay? So this is one of the big nuggets that I was excited to bring you guys tonight because when somebody's asking you, how can you have confidence in the word of God? How could you know that it wasn't messed with? If you don't know the history of the, of the documents themselves, it can be a tricky conversation to have. Honestly, because also because a lot of times the person asking the question sadly knows more about it than your average churchgoer. So let me take, let me, let me take a, 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 this a few minutes and go over some of this stuff for you guys. First things first, I want to go over a, the, a list of codexes. A codex, okay, what is a codex? Well, codex is like the Bible was originally all in scrolls. Like we talk about this all the time. The book of Revelation was a scroll. It was 15 feet long. They would write one page when it was full. They would seal it to the next and it would keep going 15 feet for re just for Revelation, okay? A codex was really the first generation of when they had books in binding and the Bible became a book, the, the first books of the Bible that we had and that we have that all other translations, hear me now, all other translations of the Bible are written off of one of four major codexes. And I want to I show them to you. I want to, like I said, I want to give you ammunition. I want to arm you with truth. Can we see this first uh, graphic? Here's this first graphic. Three different codexes. I'm going to read this with you. Codex Alexandrius, Alexandrinus, okay? Uh, this was discovered around 1630, the year, not till the year 1630, and it was brought to England. And it was claimed, the, the gentleman who brought it, it's got quite a rich history. I encourage you to do a little digging into this. We don't have time for it tonight, but it, the person who found it claimed uh, that it was a 5th century manuscript containing the entire New Testament. Codex Sinaiticus, this one is even more interesting, uh, 200, 200 years later, a German scholar named Constantine von Tischendorf claimed to have discovered it at St. Catherine's Monastery in the traditional site of Mount Sinai 
In Egypt, not Arabia, because where Jabal el Laws, where the real Mount Sinai is, is in Arabia. Your Bible even tells you that it's in Arabia, but you know, through early Catholicism, they thought it would be good for tourism to have actual sites they could visit, and they put them all in Egypt. So in Egypt, the, this guy claimed that he found this codex at, at the monastery at the false, at the false uh, uh, Mount Sinai, and there's a lot, a lot, a lot of problems with this codex. I encourage you to do your own study on this one. I don't have much uh, confidence in it, truly. The third one, the third one, Codex Vaticanus. It had it'd been in the Vatican Library uh, since 19, or eight, excuse me, 1481, but it was not made available to scholars until the 19th century. They dated it at 325 AD. So it goes all the way back to the 325 AD Council of uh, Nicaea. But all three of these codexes are controversial for a number of reasons if you want to do a study on them. The fourth that's not on this list, can I see the next graphic? The fourth is the beloved Textus Receptus. This is the codex that all of the early church fathers believed was was accurate. This is the this is the this is the this is the codex that the Reformation Church fathers based all of their translations off of. So this is if you are, I've been asked a lot lately what's um, translation of the Bible I recommend, and I'll just say whatever translation, and I'll get to a list here in a minute, but whichever translation is based off of the Textus Receptus, okay? It's important for you guys to know this. You'll see why in just a moment, okay? The reason it's important is because if we're talking about protecting the sanctity of the Word of God, we're talking about how we know that we can trust the Word of God hasn't been corrupted, well, it's important for us to know the attempts that Satan has made to corrupt it, okay? So move forward in time a few hundred years, and we come to a couple guys by the name of Westcott and Hort. Can I see their photograph, please? Westcott and Hort, Bishop Brooke Foss Westcott and Fenton John Anthony Hort. Well, who are these guys? These are a couple guys that decided they would take it upon themselves to write an authoritative, a truly authoritative, uh, trans, fully translated into uh, fully translated uh, um, uh, version of the Bible from the Hebrew and from the Greek, especially in the New Testament. Especially, can I see this next graphic? Let me give you some information on who these guys were. Brooke Foss Westcott and Fenton John Anthony Hort were Anglican churchmen who had contempt for the Textus Receptus, that very codex that the Reformation fathers loved. They began a work in 1853 that resulted after 28 years in a Greek New Testament based on, get this, not the Textus Receptus, but based on the corrupt Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Can I see the next graphic? This is important that we know. Both were influenced by Origen. Origen is an early church father who was in Alexandria and was greatly influenced by the Gnostics. Uh, a lot of bad church theology um, that, that has uh, manifested into Calvinism, uh, five pillars of Calvinism, stuff like that, uh, 
ideas of predestination. I'm all I mean, from legalistic to 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 lawless. I'm just telling you, all kinds of bad news came out of Alexandria. Origin, origin dealt with being uh, corrupted, unfortunately, in his doctrine by the Gnostics. Well, both of these guys were influenced by Origin, and others who denied. Guess what? The deity of Jesus and embraced the prevalent Gnostic heresies of the period from the headquarters of the Gnostics in Alexandria, Egypt. Is this who you want doing your Bible translation? I would say no. What else? There are over 3,000 contradictions in the four Gospels alone between these manuscripts. I'll tell you what, next time somebody tells you, an unbeliever says, the Bible contradicts itself all the time, yada, 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 yada. To me, I say, well, which copy do you have? Honestly, that's what we have. We have to be aware of this because there are bad translations out there, 3,000 contradictions in the four Gospels among these manuscripts, these Gnostic influence Westcott and Hort works. They changed the traditional Greek text in over 8,413 places. Wow. Let's, let me give you a few examples of this. Let me give you a few examples of this. Can I see this first graphic? Let's see this first graphic. So if you're reading a, an NIV Bible, which is by far the most popular one out there, I've actually got one right here. This uh, this Bible that I, I've got right here and held up, it's one of my first Bibles. I love this Bible. It's NIV. It's a Westcott and Hort work. New Living, New Living Translation. There's a, a, a number of them, a number of them. Let's just see what the difference here is, though. Children, go to the graphic. Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? In Mark chapter 10, verse 24, versus the Texas Receptus, King James Version. Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. That's a big difference. I don't want that difference in my Bible. How about this? Luke 21, verse 19. By standing firm, you will save yourself. In the Texas Receptus, King James Version, in your patience possess ye your souls. Standing firm and being patient are two different things. How about John 3, verse 36? Obey. In the King James, believe it. That's, again, a big difference if we're talking about salvational issues, obedience versus believing, okay? Uh, Galatians 5, 22, faithfulness, faithfulness or faith. Don't we know there's a big difference between our, how faithful we are and the faith that we have, that's a big difference doctrinally, okay? Let's keep working the list. Let's keep going. Uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 6, but in the, in the King James Version or New King James Version, and I'll give you a list of the good guys here in a minute. Uh, Romans 11, verse 6, but if it be of works, then it is no more grace. That's the gospel. Let's see what they wrote uh, in the NIV. Oh, it's not even in there. It's cut out. It's not even there. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel of Christ. NIV, the gospel. Acts chapter 8, verse 37. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Wow, that's powerful. Acts chapter 8, verse 37 in the Westcott and Hort works. Not even there. Chopped out. 
What did Arrhenius say? They love to mutilate the scripture and even cut some of it out. Let's keep going down the list. Down the list. I'm going to read every one of these. Uh, Colossians 1 verse 14. Westcott and Hort say, in whom we have redemption. (laughs) The word of God says, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Again, that one speaks volumes to me because the new age Christianity that is most prevalent in the world today, the new age Christianity that seeks to offend nobody with the truth, seeks to offend nobody with the truth, preaches, pre- preaches a bloodless cross of Christ. They try to te- teach Jesus without the blood that needed to be shed for you. My goodness, let's keep working the list. Here we go. John, where are we at? Uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Who believes? Believes in me. Again, it's not just about believing. It's believing in Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 47. He who believes has everlasting life. He believeth, he that believeth on me have everlasting life. Again, it might seem like something small, but you know, when we're talking about the word of God here, guys, <laughs> right? First John chapter five, uh, uh, first John chapter five, verse 13. And that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Why? I mean, why would that be important to have in there, Westcott and Hort, right? My goodness. My goodness. Second John chapter 9, doctrine of Christ versus just teaching. First Timothy chapter 2 verse 7, truth versus truth in Christ, who is the truth. He is the truth, the way and the life. Galatians chapter 6 verse 15. Neither is circumcision anything. In other words, in the words of the Texas Receptus, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything. Oh, my, my, my. I wish you guys would just screenshot this. You can go visit each one of these yourself. Galatians 4, 7, an heir of God. An heir of God through Christ. It's an important emphasis here, guys. Colossians 1 Verse 2, the Father, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the last one, 1 John 4, 3. I probably missed a couple. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from us. And the Textus Receptus, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. Again, the Gnostics, remember, taught that he was a phantom, And so we see a mutilating, an angling towards uh, esoteric, Gnostic, pagan ideas in trying to infect in small little ways. See, when things are confused like this, then you can twist things. It's easier to fit New Age-ism into into the gospel and into uh, God's word for us. Why should all of this matter to you? Right? Am I just being a little bit uh, nitpicky here? There is an authority crisis in the world today. An authority crisis, period. The Holy Bible is the authoritative word of God. Authoritative word of God. When rightly divided read and taught in context. The Bible is the authority on any 
issue in life. <laughs> Our creator gave us everything we need to know on any issue in life, and it's right here. When you begin to question that, when you begin to question that, you begin to question everything. If the Bible isn't the authority, then what is? Then what is? Is it your opinion? Is it your emotion on the subject? Is it how you feel on something? Is it your truth now because there is no the truth anymore? That's why they want, that's why they want to attack the word of God, the Gnostics, the Satan, spirits of the age. Because if they can sever you from your, the anchor that the word of God is truth and authoritative on any issue, then you're, you're lost on the waves and the wind at sea. Bad doctrine, legalist, lawless, or prosperity, whatever it is, has so bled itself into the subconscious of the Christian world that most Christians today only care about themselves. It's a big statement. But honestly, most Christians walk into a church today looking to, for their own benefit. Well, how can this benefit me today? What am I going to get out of it? I, my favorite term was always like, I'm going to get fed today. No, I, we go to serve. That's the opposite of the, of the first church mentality. Christ came and he washed the feet of the disciples. Did we miss that somehow? <sighs> What has this got to do with me and my life? Uh, I mean, the pastor was teaching. I mean, he was teaching word for word out of the Bible, but I just don't know how that applies to my life. I need some preaching about me. And guess what? That's why we have an epidemic of miserable Christians. I say it all the time. One of my, uh, Pastor Paul Baggett, Pastor Clay's dad, my mentor's father, I would always say, Christians should be happy. Should. But you get Christians that are, you know, you want to be a miserable person? Just focus on yourself all the time. Be worried about you all the time. Be worried about what makes you tick, what makes you happy, making sure that you have what you want. I guarantee you, you'll be one of the most miserable people you know in no time. And guess what? That's, that goes for Christians too. You don't have to be an atheist for that to be true of you. Yet we have created a culture, or rather Satan has created a culture of the church and within the church today of miserable Christians because it's all self-focused. Because mm. they're severed from the truth of the word of God. They're severed from confidence that the word of God says what it means and means what it says, and it is the authoritative word of God. Get over yourself. You're not promised a pony and a trophy in this life. You're here to contend for the faith. That's why you're here. There are four questions that we all face in life. Can I see those? Four questions for you. We all face in life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And 
whom am I accountable? How do you answer these questions if you can't trust the authority of the word of God? We said it over and over again last week, last Wednesday night. The Bible is the word of God. It's the word of God. How do you answer these questions if you can't trust that that's true? Yet here we have a generation that has been severed from their confidence and even the concept of truth. Can I see this next graphic? I mentioned this study last week, but I didn't put the graphic up. Here's the graphic. This generation from 1978 to 1994 was polled by the Barna Group, and 91% claiming to be Christians, granted, say that what might be right for one, typo there, sorry, may not be right for another. In other words, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Now, these other stats are equally as disturbing beneath it, but the one I'm trying to drive home at you right now uh, is there's no absolute truth. 64% say that the main purpose of life is the enjoyment and satis personal satisfaction. Are you kidding me? You're not promised a pony and a trophy. That's not why you're here. You're here to be an ambassador for the kingdom of God. To contend for the faith. Mm. We see this next statement, next picture, next graphic. It's important that we understand this, every one of us. If you undermine a Christian's faith in the Bible, undermine a Christian's faith in the Bible, and you undermine their identity, their confidence, and their effectiveness. I've been talking about this over and over and over again on Sunday mornings for the last nine weeks, ten weeks, studying Ephesians. We've got to clean the dirty filter in our mind and see ourselves as God sees us, right? How does God see you? Well, it's in the Word of God. Well, if the Word of God is not authoritative, if you can have no, no confidence that it's the Word of God, how do you even know who you are? How can you have any confidence? If you have no confidence, how can you be effective? I don't care if unbelievers in this world are just not, it could be in any line of work. If you have no confidence in the work that you're doing, you're not going to be effective. Confidence is a critical, I've never met a successful person in my life that had a crisis of confidence. Never. Confidence is pivotal. Now, you don't have to be a, a you know, a, a life coach to know that. And that's why, that's, this is why I go to the trouble of digging as deep into the word as we do every, every week, every Sunday. I want us to be effective. I want us at Life Story Church, I want us to be effective. I want the church at large to be effective. I want us to be a church that has the answers to questions that knows the journey of translation that the scripture has been on so you can have the conversation. When people try to say that the scriptures could have all been written hundreds of years after Jesus supposedly lived, and they do say that, don't they? 
I want you to say, you know what, consider this. Let me see this next picture. I want you to say this. I want you to say, you know what, actually, that couldn't be true because in 64 AD, in 64 AD, Emperor Nero began persecuting Christians. James, the head of the church, the Christian church in Jerusalem, died in 62 AD. Jerusalem fell in 69 AD, and none of these pivotal occurrences were discussed in the New Testament letters. The absence of reference to these happenings imply, or rather prove, that the New Testament was written before these things happened. Therefore, we have dated the New Testament. How? Crowd goes wild. Think about this. The scriptures were all well established by 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. When all of your copies are handwritten, hand copied, hand penned by only a few, guess what? It's easy to spot the fakes. Did you know when they would take the word of God, they would take the word of God and they would make a full copy if they messed it up or anything was off, they'd have to throw it away, right? And start over by hand, right? I can't imagine doing that. Train scribes. It would take them three months to write a copy. Three months to copy. You know, we'd copy and make a photocopy now. Something this big, I bet we could make a photocopy of that in about 10 minutes, right? Three months back then. Trust me, they could spot the error. It was an art. It was something that it was a major project, like setting the foundation on a building you're building. You make sure you get it right. Let's see this next graphic, okay? I want you to say this, all right? How about this? Confidence in the Word of God? There are over 6,000 copies. 6,000 copies, each one of them taking three months to complete in the New Testament in its original Greek textus receptus. Yet, there are only 650 copies of Homer's Iliad, yet the Iliad is accepted with unquestioned faith by the world. Why would that be? Hmm. I want you to know about the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Can I see that next picture? The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered between 1946 and 1956. It's a little cave over out by the Dead Sea. Uh, if you've ever been to Israel, you drive by, you just see a little cave on the side of the road, not too far off to your right, if you're heading out to the Dead Sea. And you think, wow, just a little cave out there. Who would have thought such a discovery could be in there? Story goes, a little boy was playing and he threw a ball or a rock into the cave and heard something break. He went in there and he found scrolls that had been hidden in there to be protected from destruction that dated back to as far back as 70 BC. BC. In those scrolls were contained every book in the Bible in its original Hebrew and Greek. Every single book. Every book at least fragments of, not complete on all of them, but fragments of Matthew's letter, the gospel of Matthew. Every, every book was represented by at least a fragment, except for Esther. And guess what? 
the pieces of scripture that are there still match up with the scriptures that we have now. What a shock, huh? It's almost as if those men and women, those men primarily, who were spending three months to make a copy and made over 6,000 of them were taking it very, very seriously. Hmm. Eleven caves in the Wadi Qumran. Church, you can have confidence in the Word of God. Something else that the Word of God does. I love talking about this. Chuck Missler always talks about would always talk about hostile jamming. It's a, it's a, phrase, it's a phrase that uh, they use at MIT. Basically, it's a, a defense mechanism. What it means is that hostile jamming is found in the Word of God. What does that mean? Well, here, uh, I need to know how to get saved. Can I just go to the one chapter in the Bible that tells me how to, about grace and salvation? I can't send you to one place because it's all over the place. If it was in one place, Satan could just rip it out as if he hasn't tried. But guess what? If he rips it out, it's still all over the place. Grace is a scarlet thread that runs from Genesis to all the way through Revelation. It's in every part of the Bible. You'll find grace. You'll find the prophecies of the Messiah before he comes. You'll find the faith that leads to salvation in Abraham in the Old Testament. You'll see Gentiles being grafted in and beloved uh, uh, at Jericho, in Rahab, in Ruth. Hmm. It's also, by the way, it's also important to note uh, when you read the New Testament that the apostles aren't trying to sell anybody anything. You know, I get up here on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and I read you and teach you the word of God. I'm not trying to convince you that any of this is true. (laughs) They weren't either. The apostles were not trying to sell anybody anything. Luke and Paul relied on the fact that they were writing to contemporary eyewitnesses. Did you ever notice that? They write as though they're writing to somebody who already knows, somebody who saw what they saw. They assume the reader knows because they have seen too. Oh, wow. I forgot my watch. Well, we're out of time. Let me, I want to end here. I want to end here. The word of God is under attack. I hope that I have educated you a little bit tonight. And I hope that I have given you some tools as well here in this last piece, this last section to combat those that will come against the word of God. Peter dealt with this too. Now this is where I want to end tonight is by looking at 2 Peter, okay? So open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter. We're going to look in chapter 1, then in chapter 2. Peter knew he dealt with this too. Like I said, uh, Paul dealt with it. He wrote to the Colossians about it. John dealt with it. He wrote 1 John dealing with the Gnostics and those who wanted to take the word of God and out of context, twist it, chop it up, take pieces out of it, all to fit their agenda, to make their profit. We see the churches today doing it, and Peter knew that there would be churches today that do it too, and I think we're going to see some of them in his letter, his letter to the end-time believer here. Let's read verse 12 through, was it 22 first, 21? Let's read. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, 
though you know and are established in the present truth. So again, you know, <laughs> as a pastor, I love to, when I'm teaching something, I'm like, yeah, I've taught this before, but look, I'm not going to be negligent because I need to remind you. We, need, we all need to be reminded of this stuff, don't we? Verse 13, yes, I think it's right. As long as I am in this tent, this body, to stir up, stir you up by reminding you. Verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent. He knew his time was coming. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me, remember when he walked with uh, John, the disciple whom uh, Jesus loved. And Peter was was like, well, what's going to happen to me? What about me? (laughs) He said, well, you. Yeah, this is how you're going to be glorified in death. Yada, yada. Anyway, he knew it was coming. Verse 15, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So here are the famous last words of Peter. Verse 16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables. Oh, they're here today. They were there then. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, verse 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, verse 18, and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain, verse 19, and we have the prophetic word confirmed. So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, pay attention, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Do you get that? There's no one that's got an, en- an enlightenment that you can't have yourself. God isn't giving secrets to other people in the body of Christ that he doesn't want you to know, doesn't want you to have, and maybe this person will uh, tell you, or maybe you can learn it from uh, um, Bill Johnson if you become a part of his cult, okay? No secret knowledge, no, it's, there's none of this, all right? The Holy Spirit is indwelling every Christian believer and is revealing the same truth and it's revealed to you when you study the word of God and you, you see it, you feel it, it's revealed, all right? It's, it's, he didn't just give it to one person. No prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of a man, Okay? Doesn't matter how much you beg for it. If you, you're trying to be a prophet, you can't conjure it up. You can't fake it till you make it. You can't just, whatever comes on the top of my head is now prophecy. I'm really feeling like you're going to get married in a year. Oh, it drives me nuts, these movements. Uh, they, and they, You're called to be a preacher, even though the person was not gifted to be a preacher. The Holy Spirit would have to gift that person and then line the works up for them to walk into. 
Ah, you're supposed to, you'll be married in a year. They, they, how do you know if they're gonna, the Lord is going to bring the right person and that that's even God's will for somebody's life? <sighs> Prophecy never came by the will of a man, but holy men of God, pay attention, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This new apostolic reformation, Google it. New apostolic reformation, Google it. It's poison. It's poison. It's Gnostic. It has so many Gnostic elements to it. It'll churn your stomach. Mm. New ap- People I care about in the city, I love, are falling into this Gnostic heresy. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 22. Let's finish here tonight. But there were also false prophets among the people. As I said, Peter knew we would deal with them. The, the Gnostic heresy infecting the church tried to infect it then, infected it then as it infects it now in the end times. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Oh, listen up, church. Satan's favorite place to hang out is in the church. This is why we are a church that preaches doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Now, we don't want to be like the Ephesian church that was very, did great defending the doctrine, but then lost their first love. We don't want to lose that, right? But doctrine, 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 Satan's favorite place to hang out is in the church because why? It's his biggest threat. It's his biggest threat is you, is the church, the body of believers. Mm. And because you're Christ's biggest love and he hates him. Satan hates you because you love Jesus and Jesus loves you. And God created you for a relationship with him and Satan is jealous and he hates you. Mm. They'll be, they, let's get back to the verse. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves destruction, swift destruction. Verse two, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth is blasphemed by covetousness. Ooh, how about those teachers that say, oh, don't you want this? Don't you want that? You got to want, you want this? I, they promise you things. If you follow them, they'll exploit you with deceptive words. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Keep reading. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Verse 4, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world in verse 5, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. He didn't know Noah was a preacher, did you? He was right there. Bringing in the flood on the world of of the ungodly. Verse 6, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards would live ungodly and deliver righteousness. Boy, he's going all in on this. And delivered righteous lot 
who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Verse 8, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul. Didn't know that Lot was tormented, did you? Tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. And that's you. He knows how to deliver you out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Verse 10, and especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. He, this is a strong word against these false teachers. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, in other words, righteous heavenly things. Whereas angels, verse 11, who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Let's bring it home. Let's read, let's read verse 12 through 22. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as to those who count it pleasure to, to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions. And this is it. Come on. While they feast with you, within the church, among the church, having eyes full of adultery and they cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls that are within the body. They have a heart trained in covetous practices. Covetous practices. Don't you want this? Don't you want this? You're entitled and are cursed, accursed children. They've forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of righteousness. Do you love sin? They love. They love. Don't, don't forget. Come on now, let's be honest. Wait, the wages of unrighteousness, there, there's always the immediate gratification for the unrighteousness. The unrighteous act or deed, you receive that immediate gratification, but, gratification, but in that is destruction and death. But they loved it the wages of that unrighteousness so much. Verse 16, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. <laughs> a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Whew. Sounds like a lot of Jude in there. This is where 18 through 22 I want to close strong on this. Those who come and seek to undermine and corrupt the word of God, church, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through the lewdness, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. So people who have escaped from living in error, they've already escaped false teaching. Perhaps they've escaped legalism already, only to be found and preyed upon by these other false teachers bringing in Gnostic heresies. Verse 19, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption for by whom a person is overcome. By him also he is brought into bondage. Mm. 
For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter is worse for them than the beginning. Do you get that? In other words, here people have been saved. They've been saved into Christ Jesus from the world, brought into the church only to have these corrupt teachers. Is there any wonder why the Holy Spirit drops the hammer like he just did. Like what is reserved for you is the darkest blackness forever. These precious little ones that the Lord loves, that he has brought out of the world from death into salvation only to have these wolves throw upon them burdens again or throw upon them more iniquity, more Gnostic lewdness. My goodness. And it's happening all around us. In the American church, it's around the world and churches today. Seems like it's here more than anywhere else that of me. Of course, I'd live here. My goodness. Verse 21, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow having washed her wallowing in the mire. Uh, that doesn't really speak to Calvinism very much to me, does it? Well, there's an old saying, fool me once, right? Shame on, shame on me. You know, I like to say it the George Bush way the best, you know, fool me once, you know, shame on, shame on you, fool me, don't get fooled again, <laughs> best quote ever, don't be fooled, don't be fooled, set your feet in a firm foundation of truth, the word of God, the truth. One more, one more slide on the way out. I always like to say this, the best way, is it not in there? You write this down then, write this down. We said it last week, I thought it was in there from last week. The best way to spot a lie is to know the truth already. Church, the best way, friends, the best way to spot a lie is to know the truth already. Put this in your heart. Meditate on this. <sighs> there are too many who would seek to deceive you today. There are many who would seek to deceive you. They come in the same spirit of the Gnostics. They come in the spirit of Satan in Genesis chapter 3. The Bible is the word of God. If you believe this, it should change everything for you. We've got a supernatural, interdimensional book that shows us a portal, gives us a portal into the very heart of God. It should change everything. So with what intention do you handle it? Do you, do you read it because you want to read a story or are you looking for life? There is life to be had for you in the word of God and you can have confidence 
in it. I hope I've helped build some confidence in it tonight, and I hope I've given you uh, fair warnings as well for those that would seek to undermine your confidence in it in this day and age in which we live. So with that, we'll close tonight. With every eye closed and every head bowed, thank you for hanging with us tonight. Come back next Wednesday. We're going to continue in this foundation sermon series. Join us Sunday mornings. We're going through Ephesians chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're heading into chapter 6 this coming Sunday morning. It's going to be incredible. Hope to see you guys there. Um, boy, what, a, what an awesome spirit we had in the house of the Lord uh, this past Sunday. Just joy. Joy in the house of the Lord. If you're here tonight and the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart in whatever way, I just want to pray with you. If you're here tonight and you want to ask him to build your confidence in the Word, hopefully he's done that a little bit tonight. But if you're wanting to lay anything down, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your faithfulness, your kindness, your goodness. We thank you for the Word of God, Lord. We thank you for the truth that's in it. We thank you for the life that's in it, Lord. Oh, I ask that you'd restore the confidence in the word of God to your people, to your church, Lord Jesus, to the world. We thank you for it. We thank you for the revelation that is within it, Lord. We thank you for the joy that comes to us within it, the life that comes to us that is within it, Lord. Pray a blessing over your people, that they would be uh, uh, preserved in this time, that they would be bold in this time to be ambassadors for you in this world and to defend the word of God in this time. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. We love you guys. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. Go before you. May you prosper in all you do. Have a blessed week. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good night. <music>